Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. Yikes. Uh, well, I can't. Uh, thank you so much. Um, being part of this season of Saturday Night Live was um, the most meaningful thing that I will ever do, so I should just probably stop now. Um, thank you so much to Lauren Michaels for letting me be a part of this and um, for everything else in my life. Congratulations to our incredible cast, especially Vanessa Leslie and Alec. Love you all so much. Um, thank you to our crew, and thank you to our amazing writers. Um, it's all about the writing, you guys. Um, especially... Uh, Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, I love you so much. Um, thank you to Fred, Brian, Melissa, Lauren. Thank you to Fern and Suze, my L.A. moms. Thank you, Jack. I love you. Um, what else? Thank you. I want to, on a very personal note, I want to say thank you to Hillary Clinton for your grace and grit. And thank you, my mother and sister. I'm so proud of you, Mom. I love you. Okay. I suppose I should say, at long last, Mr. President, here is your Emmy. Uh, I want to thank my wife. Uh, my wife and I had three children in three years, and we didn't have a child last year during the SNL season. I wonder if there's a correlation there. All you men out there, you put that orange wig on, it's birth control, trust me. Um, uh, uh, thank you to Lauren, always to Lauren. Thank you to Chris and Sarah and to Kenward and to uh, uh, all, all the great writers here at SNL. To, congratulations to Kate and to uh, thank you to the cast. Thank you to uh, Lindsay and to Grace for making me feel welcome there. Uh, thank you to Steve Higgins for giving me a lot of encouragement. I just want to say, if I leave anybody out, I'm sorry, but I do want to get this in, which is, you know, I always remember what someone told me, that is when you die, you don't remember a bill that Congress passed or a decision the Supreme Court made or an address made by the President. You remember a song, you remember a line from a movie, you remember a play, you remember a book, a painting, a poem. What we do is important. And for all of you out there in motion pictures and television, don't stop doing what you're doing. The audience is counting on you. Thank you. Yo, I'm so happy. Wow. Thank you guys so much. This is nuts. I, I, I really want to thank the Academy again. Everybody in here, you guys, I love you. I want to thank my mom and my dad again. I want to thank the city of Atlanta. I want to thank FX. I want to thank, I want to thank, I want to thank Michelle, my partner. You love me even when I, how crazy I get. I want to thank my baby, my son, for, for just being the joy in my life. I want to thank my unborn son. We're listening to Stevie tonight. I want to thank Trump for making black people number one on the most oppressed list. He's, he's the reason I'm probably up here. And um, I just want to thank all the writers and all the people in here and everybody doing great work because it's so necessary. And I, I really appreciate everybody here. Thank you so much. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. Oh, yeah, there was the Emmys. How to lead with the Emmys? I had a whole bunch of leadoffs today. 
um, that I wanted to cover, but I kept bumping the previous lead in with more stupid. But it's the 19th of September, year Lord 2017. Welcome back to Flyover Politics Podcast. I am your host, Tony Reed. Gotta talk about the Emmys because here's the point. Colbert's Emmys on track to be the least watch Emmys ever. It was 8.2, which is under 11 million people. The nightly news on NBC gets more people than Colbert got for his Emmys. And when you roll out Jane Fonda and company, which I did not play, not going to play. Yeah, that's what you get. America's kind of sick of it. They may not like Trump. They may want Trump to go away. But they... Surely I'm sick of daily Trump sucks. Trump sucks. Trump sucks. And of course there's this also. Who are you rooting for tonight? I'm rooting for um everybody black. <laughs> I am. How big the audience is? Sean, do you know? You know, Cupboard with Glover, which is the last soundbite you heard on the intro, saying that they're the number one oppressed with no proof that Donald Trump ever did anything to black. I mean, if you want to say Trump is a sexist, you can say that. He said he grabbed people by the JJ. If you want to say Trump is a xenophobe or a llamaphobe, okay, I get, I get where you get that. This black thing just cracks me up. And when you couple it with that, Isa Ray, I'm rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. Yeah. Do you think anybody could ever get on TV? I'm rooting for the white people. And then Sean Spicer comes out there and acts like the court jester. Jenny McCarthy said that that's a part I didn't like. I was like, no, it's not us, Justin, two people making the joke. It's we're making that joke. I had a moment of fear about when he was like, don't make me move the podium. I thought, no, that's not your joke to make. And that hurt my feelings. Um, I love Jenny McCarthy. I think she's funny as hell. But the anti-Trump stuff, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna get, you're gonna, you're gonna get, you're just gonna get it, folks. As David Root said, just can't make it up. They're in, this self-serious. And he's right. We'll talk a little bit about Jennifer Lawrence and mother and how well that's doing. You get 11 million voters or less than 11 million voters when you alienate most of the country. Even the anti-Trumpers are getting tired. As my idol John Gibson, who actually started his show the same way I started mine, but by the way, mine was written before his, uh, you know, when you can't watch football because you're sick of the football social warrior justice bullshit, 
social justice warriors try to do that right. And you don't want to watch the Emmys because this is all it's going to be, bringing the nine to five people out of their crypt and have them bash him. Where do you turn anymore? Oh, I know. Watch Game of Thrones a million times. That's what I'm doing. There's nothing else to watch till Live PD comes back on in the new season. Uh, yeah. But there's other articles of the 10 most left-wing moments. Stephen Colbert presaged the evening to come saying that Trump was certainly watching, taunting, looking forward to his tweets. Colbert then spent almost five minutes singling out Trump for criticism. The big beginning uh, with Trump everything not winning an Emmy for The Apprentice. The lengthy section wrapped with a surprise cameo from Sean Spicer. Number, uh, well, I guess eight. They, they numbered their shit wrong. Oh, that was nine. <laughs> I can't do math this morning. Alec Baldwin, who won an award for his parents' sign live, where he lampooned Trump on a nearly weekly basis, said he and his wife had three kids in three years. But then he began portraying Trump on SNL, and the orange wig proved to be effective birth control. Uh, comedian Kate McKinnon, who, oh, we got some shit on that. Oh, wow. Who played Hillary Clinton on Saturday Night Live last season, infamously saying the hallelujah bullshit. <sighs> Used her acceptance speech to thank Clinton for your grace and grit. Yeah, we got more Hillary in the close of the loop, but, um, that, I didn't get it. Me and my wife were like, what is that? Why she's crying? Oh, wait till I read some shit about that. That is like a battle cry and a moment of, Zen for all these people that hate Trump. Six, we already talked about it, the rolling out the nine to five crew. Five, John Lithgow won an Emmy for his portrayal of Winston Churchill in The Crown, used a set of speech to jab Trump. In these crazy times, Churchill's life, even as an old man, reminded us what courage and leadership in government really looks like. Yeah, you, you didn't, lefties didn't like Churchill before, but now anybody's good. Four, lengthy interlude during which the Television Academy, which runs Emmys, congratulated itself for its increasing number of gay and transsexual members. Lena Waithe, who directs Netflix Masters of None and described herself as a queer black girl from South Side of Chicago, gave a shout out to her LGBTQIA cosign of phone for family. Three, comedian Camille Najina, who presented an, I, I didn't say that right, and I don't really give a fuck, and Emmy managed to work in a jab at Trump's border wall. They also celebrate people who frankly race across international borders, and those who can scale walls really, really quick. In other words, the president's worst nightmare. Two, Louis, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, if you got a hyphen name, you're a douchebag. Return later in the show for Veep Award. We did have a whole storyline about impeachment, but we abandoned that because we were worried that someone else might get to it first. And one, Danny Glover. Trump for making black people the number one on the most oppressed list. Yeah, no proof to that, but... Um, yeah, the ratings are shitty. Things we didn't see. Air conditioners outside on the red carpet. These are the people who live in the glow, you know, the, the freaking glorious house of global warming, climate change, lecture everybody as they fly on Learjets. But they had air conditioning outside. Celebrity handlers on the red carpet show are all publicists that follow around the stars. They help place any string, super long or complicated dress trains and arrange photographs and interviews along the carpet. Like the royalty. Security fucking everywhere. They shut down LA streets. Police with guns. TSA level of security to get in, but oh no, 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 no! You in the flyover states, you don't need your gun. Why do you need that gun? Four, LA Live is trams into Westworld worth maze. 
If you live in L.A. and build L.A. Live downtown, you expect to feel like man in the black searching for the center of the, the maze. Regular entrances and parking structures are blocked off to make a maze-like red carpet that gets everyone exactly where they're supposed to go. Five celebs needing downtime. Shannon Purser, Stranger Things, strolling a Marriott before the show where Sterling K. Brown, This Is Us, was also seen chilling on his phone. Feed the press. Sorry to all the stars of fast during the three-hour ceremony. A Stephen Colbert joked that it'll be monologue. They've eaten nothing but water and crest white strips. Hardworking journalists in the press room are fed, however. Seven, the voice secrets. When asked by reporters backstage what the, what makes the perfect voice contestant, producer Audrey Morrison highlighted a perfect voice, a perfect attitude, and a great story help, she added. But it's really the attitude, and just tried their best week after week. Women won the night. That was a big thing. Thirteen stars who imagined violence against Donald Trump and Kathleen Gifford to Anthony Bourdain were all there. All right. All there. Snoop Dogg. All of them. They're all important. They're there. Every one of them. Just, they're, they're really great. And it covers all the things they said. And they were there in force because they're important people. That they, they need, we need to see them. It's so important for us to see them. And of course, afterwards, then the media gets in on the act. Some of Hollywood's top stars, along with newcomers, are celebrating historic wins at the Emmy Awards. Television's biggest night was infused with politics and references to the president. Saturday Night Live was honored for its political satire, and women took home top awards for shows like Big Little Lies and The Handmaid's Tale. The night also highlighted racial and ethnic diversity. Kevin Frazier from our partners at Entertainment Tonight is in Los Angeles with a night with a look at the night. Kevin, good morning to you. It was quite a night. It was quite a night, Gail. Good morning. You know, there were history-making moments at the Emmys last night, but it really was politics that took center stage. The reoccurring punchline, President Donald Trump, who never won an Emmy, despite being nominated twice for his reality show past. Was this Emmys more political than ever before? Oh, I think in, in the Trump age, everything in Hollywood is more political than it was before, and that was definitely true at the Emmys. It was really the Trump White House's credibility crisis on display with Sean Spicer surprising the audience, uh, making jokes about one of his most infamous moments where he was misleading the public. That was back after the inauguration. We talked about the crowd size. So take a look at this video. What was Spicer doing here? Was he auditioning for a TV job? Take a look. Unfortunately, at this point, we have no way of knowing how big our audience is. I mean, is there anyone who could say how big the audience is? Sean, do you know? This will be the largest audience to witness an Emmys, period, both in person and around the world. Wow, that really soothes my fragile ego. I can understand why you'd want one of these guys around. Melissa McCarthy, everybody, give it up. 
<laughs> having, having Melissa in the crowd was crucial, of course, uh, having her react to the real-life Sean Spicer. You know, right now, Spicer's looking for work. He's out there getting public speaking gigs, consulting jobs. He's been looking for a TV commentator deal. You might remember CNN actually said, no, we're not interested in hiring Spicer. That was a little bit of a, of a smack at his credibility problems when he was press secretary. So far, he hasn't found a TV commentator job, but he was on Kimmel, and now he's been at the Emmys. So he's having some fun with his personality from the White House. Look, Brian, I mean, in this age of shamelessness, is it just a matter of time before he gets a TV gig? I mean, I find it hard to believe that Sean Spicer is not going to land a good job. But in addition to that, obviously, the Spicer moment was just that, just a moment. So how else were we seeing politics come to play last night in the awards show? Yeah, I think people who were voting on what shows, what winners were, were going to take home Emmys were certainly thinking about politics, whether it's The Handmaid's Tale, this breakout show on Hulu uh, with a lot of political themes, or whether it's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver winning for the second year in a row, or Alec Baldwin winning for his impersonation of Trump on SNL. Uh, what we saw was liberal Hollywood reacting to the Trump age in a variety of these categories. And as for Spicer, we'll see who ends up having the last laugh. A lot of people are saying that Colbert should not be normalizing Sean Spicer, uh, rewarding him with attention like this. But, you know, this was Colbert's idea. He thought it would be funny. He thought it would be worth it. Uh, and, of course, it's the talk of everybody's uh, social media feeds now this morning. Sure is. All right. Former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer making a cameo during one of the more memorable moments of the 69th Primetime Emmy Awards. But not everybody was laughing. Some criticized that moment as normalizing and making light of a White House press office that has repeatedly been caught lying and exaggerating. I want to bring my panel back for a reaction to this. I want to start with you, Congresswoman. We all sort of laughed about it. And when I watched it, I laughed about it, too, coming up in the podium, Melissa McCarthy style. But there is an argument to be made. Sean Spicer did get up there and lie. He lied about crowd size the day after the president was inaugurated. All three of us are parents. Yeah. We know. We teach our kids lying not acceptable. What's your take on this? Well, I thought it was funny and was smart of him to do it. You got to be able to joke about things, but part of it is we joke. But joke about, about what? That he got up there and lied over and over. This, this is the White House. The funny thing is, if any of this would happen under Barack Obama. I could have played a totally different media soundbite because they would have lost their mind. How dare you disrespect the Anointed One? We're playing the next soundbite for news before we go into closed loop. But Nancy Pelosi got heckled by DACA. Young kids calling her a fucking liar. Uh, the story goes, let me see if I can get into the story a little heated. Da, da, da. Several dozen young immigrants shouted down the top house Democrat following her recent controversies or conversation with Donald Trump. We are immigrant youth undocumented, unafraid. They chanted taking over a scheduled press conference for Pelosi, Barbara Lee, Jared Huffman organized a call for immediate passage of the Dream Act. Demonstrators from the group Immigration Liberation Movement appeared to be aiming at Pelosi's recent engagement with Trump, which is bad. And you're a liar. Dreamers confront Pelosi over negotiation with Trump over DACA. This was all over the place. The soundbite I could actually play. Guess what? It was on MSDNC. And I ask you, normal Americans, how extreme do these people have to be if Nancy Pelosi's bad? How extreme? Seriously, folks, how fucking extreme are they? She wants no borders. 
but they don't like her. It's fucking out of control. So, to my original lead-in, this is rather lengthy, but me and the wife watched it, and, and this is a professor. He's a leader of Antifa. He has a giraffe neck, and he... Oh, it's a good sign into Antifa. Anti-fascist Antifa. Whenever conservatives want to speak on campus or hold a rally, Antifa groups are a reliable presence, and they routinely try to stamp out speech using vigilante violence, which they perversely justify as a form of self-defense. Mike Isaacson is a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He founded the Antifa group Smash Racism DC, and he joins us tonight. Professor, thanks for coming on. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for having me. So your position, tell me if I'm mischaracterizing this, is people you define as fascist do not have free speech rights. No. Uh, my position is that communities have the right to defend themselves against uh, groups that actively seek uh, to eliminate members of that community. To defend themselves against violence or defend yes, themselves against, against, against violence? I mean, we were talking about... Uh, no, but, no, but physical violence? So yes, if physical I say, violence. for example... We're talking about a history, uh, a group that has a history of no, no, not, uh, not, not hate crimes. Yeah, no, we're not... No, no, are we, no, we going to pretend like we're just... We're, we're suddenly uh, in this ahistorical world uh, where, where oh, not uh, Dylan I'm, Roof or Wade Michael Page doesn't exist, where... Uh, Bravik doesn't exist? Are you kidding me? No. Are you only a professor, by the way? What? Uh, so here's, here's the question, though. Is it past statements that have espoused violence, or is it acts of violence? It's so both. could you... Could you, okay, then we're talking could about, you we're talk- hold on. Let me just finish mm-hmm. my question. Could, could you commit violence against me if you thought that I had a history of saying things that you imagined were violent. I, I would never commit violence against you. Um, I actually, when I was younger, I was a libertarian, and I actually looked up to you when you were a libertarian. Okay, but let, let, uh, let's take me out of this. Okay. Let, let's just, I, I want to know, like, the, the, the concept of self-defense is a legal concept, but it's mm-hmm. also got, like, a long sure. uh, history and tradition in common law. So, the idea is if I'm hitting you, if I strike you physically, if I physically commit violence against you, you have a right to commit violence back in order to protect yourself or your property. Sure. But you're seeming to say that anybody who has espoused ideas that have at some point in history led to violence can be the subject of violence from you. You're not saying that. No, I'm not saying that. Uh, what I'm saying is that I believe it is the right for communities to get together to assess what is a threat to them uh, and to defend themselves against that threat. So give me an example. Like what public figure in America right now could be shut down, could have his free speech rights taken away, and could be the subject of violence under the standards you're describing? Uh, well, I mean, for instance, I, I think that the framework here of, of talking about violence as opposed to talking about preserving the very freedoms that you and I both enjoy uh, is, is a false one. I mean, ultimately, we're talking about a movement that actively advocates against all the fetters of democracy. Uh, I mean, we're talking about Richard Spencer, who uh, publishes an altright.com, publishes an article uh, on July 28th by a man named Vincent Law, uh, where the headline was, to protect free speech, get rid of democracy. Um, so I, we really okay, have well, to... I, you know what? I, okay, so let's let's use that example. I disagree with that. I haven't seen the piece, but it doesn't sound like something I'd agree with. It's, it's not. Does Richard Spencer have a right? to speak in public. Richard Spencer is a danger to society. When he speaks in public, what he is doing, he is publicly recruiting people to his very violent movement, very violent okay, ideology. So does, 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 does he have a right to speak in public? 
I don't think he has a right to speak in public unopposed, and that is ultimately what the purpose of Antifa is, is to show well, up and, and oppose him. But it's not opposition. You shut people down, you prevent them from speaking, and you commit violence against it's them. Absolutely. I know a number of people, well, don't tell me it's untrue, I know people who have been knocked down and beaten by people from Antifa. So that is true. It does happen. We have it on tape. We just roll the tape. Right. So you're saying is that justified? Yes. I believe that communities have the right to defend themselves against threats to them, to their community. Against ideas they don't like. No. They against, have a right against, to commit against violence. people who have explicitly said that they want to eliminate those people from our society. But I you're conflating, you're conflating violence with ideas. No. If I I'm have not, not raised my hand think, to strike you, you have no right to right, strike but you me. Have, but in order to raise your hand to strike me, you have to think that you're going to strike me. And when you, when you are going out in public uh, as a protester, saying that you want to eliminate most of the people from this country. I believe most of the people in this country have the right to say, no, that's not okay. Okay, but it's, you absolutely have a right to say it's not okay. What you don't have a right is to prevent me from saying what I think, even if you disagree, and you definitely don't have a right to commit violence against me. And you're blurring the lines there. And by the way, don't you work at a criminal... Okay, you don't have the right to do that. You have the right to make a counter case. Do you see the distinction so, that I'm making? Tucker, when I, when I walked into this building, um, I, walked, I counted five security guards at the front door uh, and two police cars outside. Um, are you going to tell me that the violence that they would enact against someone who is looking to do you or any number of the people that work here harm, are you going to tell me that the violence uh, that they enact uh, to protect preemptively uh, the staff uh, that are protected also by uh, the barricades that you have? Uh, I don't even know what you're talking honestly, I'm not honestly not following are you. Are you, are you, are you, are you going to pretend that you student. don't have security? Well, I actually don't have security, but there is security at There's our security building, in your building, for sure. And there's and the security there is at security, lots of buildings. And the reason that there is security in your building is, No, the reason that you have security is because ultimately that security provides a space for nonviolent civil discourse, which is ultimately what we want. Oh, no, so slow down. There are lots of million distinctions here, but you don't own the public square. You no, don't I own the, the street. But I believe the public and, owns the public square. And at the end of the day, you're not in charge of the public, and you're not the public in isn't even in charge of public. Okay. We, we, are, we are talking about a system that has been gerrymandering people out of public re right. representation, okay? If we're relying on the cops, ultimately those cops are working for the very people that you work for uh, and not in the interest of the vast majority of society. We Do don't have, representation. We don't have representation by the state. We don't. Okay, this last, is something question, last question. Do you teach students? I do. Huh. And do you teach them that the First Amendment does not apply to people they disagree with? I teach them to think critically, and that's why I'm very open about my anti-fascism and my anarchism. So, uh, if and someone in, so if someone in your class said, you know what, I'm a Trump, I'm a Trump voter, I'm against those. affirmative action. I've had those, and I've, I encourage them to research and explore and hold them to the exact same standards that I hold any other student. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I do. I had an alt-right supporter actually in my class last semester. Yeah. I, worked, I, I worked with him on his papers. He started off kind of bad at citation. I got him better at citation, and he wrote a paper that was uh, an A paper. Um, yeah. I mean, I am right. not discriminating against my students. Yeah. Ultimately, Except you think that people who disagree should be beaten up, but whatever. All right, Congressman. I mean, Congressman. <laughs> Close, Professor. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. You know, it's also crazy right now that it's hard to know what's a real story and what's a fake story. This is a real one.
it's time for pumpkin spice latte because it's fall, but now a feminist group says pumpkin spice lattes are somehow a sign of white supremacy, and you're supporting white supremacy if you buy them. Why are they arguing that? We're going to talk to someone who will explain after the break. Yeah, you know, it just shows these guys are just anarchists. From his, his name is Mike Isaacson, I-S-A-A-C-S-O-N. Vulgar Economics is his Twitter handle if you want to look him up. Anti-communism code for fascism. Some of y'all might think it sucks being an anti-fascist teaching at John Jay College, but I think it's privileged to teach future dead cops. If you really think that the way to fight Nazis is through dialogue, here's my guide on how to prepare. You can't punch all Nazis, is the PDF outline. The more and more we peel it, the more the onion is very, very rotten on the inside. Because then there was the police officer, Jason Stockley, who shot Anthony Lamar, and he was let off because it was in self-defense. These are all from St. Louis, Missouri police. Rocks and water bottles have been thrown at our officers throughout the day. Officers are using great restraint. Agitators damage a police car. Those cause instructions to distract from the mission of peaceful protesters, the police said. Tear gas was deployed because agitators became violent towards officers and destroyed property on Kings Highway and Waterman. Jacob Long tweets, just in, our camera captured agitators hurling bricks towards the line of police, striking an officer and knocking him down. That officer was transported to a hospital because he sustained an injury from said brick. More rocks at buses and now apartment high-rise and passing cars by masked individuals, Casey Nolan said. The mass, ooh, who are those mysterious masked individuals? More hashtag CWE damage at public library. They destroyed the library. Alexis Zotos tweeted, morning after protesters marched through CWE, agitators and groups smashed windows of St. Louis Public Library. They uh, converged on Mayor Cruson's house, throwing rocks and breaking windows. Despite being instructed not to, they're going to listen. They refused to disperse, causing property damage to the mayor's home. Those who don't comply with police orders subject to arrest. And then there was this from KTVI Fox 2 reporter. He said this was the scariest moment of his life. Basically, out of fucking control. There's another reporter that will not be saying, hey, Antifa's peaceful protesters. They brought in guns, military and police grade pepper spray, which I don't know how they got them. And one great picture that I saw was uh, with your shield die on it with your shield or some shit. They actually had shields. They have their Antifa flags. 
body armor, face masks, guns, three or four sabers, like Gurkha sabers. And by the end of it, Ed Sheeran, U2, a bunch of other events had to cancel because it was a, a remake of Ferguson. They just kept on doing it. Yeah. It was really nice. In other news, a little boy asked to mow the lawn at the White House. The president let him. The president came out, talked to the kid, did an Oval Office. But the resistance never lets it go. This is literally real tweets. I'm not making this up. I, I, I couldn't make this up. Gray Greenhouse. Not sending a great signal on child labor, minimum wage, and occupational safety. Trump White House lets a 10-year-old volunteer Moe's lawn. Bill Crystal, the sanctimonious and humorless finger-wagging of nanny state progressives in one tweet. He wasn't the only one. There was multiple. The media played it because the kid didn't stop mowing. He just kept mowing. And they said even the kid doesn't want to talk to him on MSDNC. And that's just a few tidbits before we go into the loop. So in the Russia, Russia, Russia and Obama wiretapped us, CNN reports investigators wiretapped former Trump campaign chairman before and after election. So the entire time, Trump Manafort was being wiretapped? Is that what we're saying? Seriously. Yeah, yeah. That, that That's just fucking fantastic. And then Berkeley happened. These are some of the Berkeley... Protesters, the police did a good job, barricaded it off. There was no incident. Speech is violent. We will not be silent. That's actually tweets or uh, chants they did. Just talked to a Berkeley freshman who said she'll be seeking counseling after Ben at Berkeley event. She's not attending a speech. Tariq Nasheed just talked to a Berkeley freshman who said she'll be seeking counseling after Ben at Berkeley event. She's not attending the speech. It's a different tweet and a different one. Peter J. Hassan, claiming to be Jewish, if Tariq isn't being anti-Semitic here, he's flirting pretty hard with it, because he actually tweeted that he's claiming to be Jewish. Another one, dude, Ben is an Orthodox Jew, quite Breitbart to oppose Trump, became hash number one Jewish journalist, abused online by alt-right because of it, per ADL. But to Tariq Nasheed, he's not a real Jew. Then the Berkeley police actually put out people that were arrested. Sarah Rourke, 44, of San Francisco, was arrested for carrying a banned weapon near Bancroft Way in Bowditch. She replied to my doxers and others wondering about my arrest today. Can't comment because no legal counsel yet, but encourage you to fact check. 
NBC Bay Area report Rourke is an active in Berkeley anti-fascism movement, speaking on the street and on social media, but her husband said she never violent. She was arrested because her sign exceeded the size allowed by police, while police have been wary of poster board signs attached to wooden handles. The sticks can be weaponized. Rourke's is reported to have complied with construction material requirements. And then people started looking. This one is reportedly a supporter of Hillary Clinton. Has a photo with Hill. When will CNN and MSM call Hillary Clinton to disavow? Yeah. She was a Hillary supporter. So now we have like three or four Hillary supporters that are now being caught up either killing people like the shooter in Washington, D.C. or an Antifa. And then there was a big thing this weekend by Sarah Joan. It's a stand of the Times hasn't issued some sort of apology retraction for Barry Weiss column defending an alt-right event. I feel like we're sort of through the looking glass. I'm not sure how the editorial page can really be redeemed at this point. Barry Weiss responds, and she's a woman, minority. I'm concerned that you don't understand what an op-ed page is. Because they literally talked about Ben Shapiro and how... He should be able to speak. But they don't want to speak. Usually save this for our college crazy, but now Pitt students are asking for all police to be disarmed on their campus. They shouldn't have weapons. So they're free to do whatever the fuck they want. But the best one that I've heard lately on this whole thing, which is all under the Antifa subject, Whoopi Goldberg said that this is just made up. Don't believe me? I'll play the soundbite. And then we'll go straight in to Hillary. Oh, yeah. Hillary. This is really, really good. Antifa, for those, it's, it's anti-fascism. And for anybody that thinks that this is a not violent group, I mean, they're predicated on violence. And in fact, the Department of Homeland Security, you according know, to documents... I, but I, the, saw the, I saw your thing, and let me just say this to you. When we look to see what they were talking about, there was nothing there. Because when you look at the bottom of the, your list... The year that they're talking about is when uh, Obama was in. So right. we went to see what they had been protesting, what fascist stuff Antifa had been protesting. And there isn't anyone. There's nothing there. We can't find anything. So this, to me, Antifa is one of those things that, I don't want to say the right, but somebody came up with as a, as a catchphrase so that you could say, you know, oh, there is violence on the other side. But I don't remember violent... Uh, demonstrations before the gentleman who's in now got in. Well, that's, that's, that's the thing. That's the I, issue. Can I, I, I just, I yes. just want to say, because yeah. um, yeah. I didn't get to finish the, the point I, about I the anti-fascism. No, it's all right, though. I get it. And that's totally fine. But according to confidential government documents, they were labeled a, quote, domestic terrorist group. 
Antifa was. The Department of Homeland Security yeah. started warning local and state officials about them back in 2016. When we were at the inauguration covering it for ABC, we took a quick break, got a quick bite in D.C., and Antifa started storming the streets. I was frightened. They had, we had to lock the restaurant they were, we were in because they were knocking people over. They were burning they things. Were they were attacking the police. Yeah, but they, they weren't. And they were throwing things at the windows, breaking were? the windows. Did you, ha, when did you first hear that phrase? Antifa. I just, I actually just started hearing about Antifa a couple of months ago, even well, though they've been that's, dubbed. That's my that, point. I think that's, that's a domestic terror. I had never heard of it. I, I, my understanding is that it's, it doesn't have a leader. It doesn't have a headquarters. It's not, it's not an organized group. And I do not think that you can compare this Antifa movement with the KKK. No, you can't. You can't, you can't do this subtle scare. And the that's subtle what scare is what that that phrase is. That's yes. what I wanted to see because I'd never heard of this. I hadn't either. You know, and and people kept saying, well, you know, on the on television, particularly on the on the other networks, mm -hmm. you know, well, this group. And I kept saying, well, who is this group? Because when you see how stuff is organized, you can say, yes, that's who we are. We're fighting for this. But oftentimes, I've found that sometimes the side that is fetching the loudest. Mm -hmm has sort of orchestrated this so they can bitch about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure who was storming uh, yeah. through the streets. I'm not sure who was storming through the streets. Well, and, and Go the, ahead, other, the other thing is, I, my fear is that this term Antifa, they're trying to use it to scare people so that they don't stand up against hate. When is it wrong to stand up against hate? It is never, ever wrong. Well, and, and well, that's that's they're using violence. Well, you can't. No one supports violence and, and, and radicalism in, in your struggle against but hate. They're, but they're, you've got to stand up against isn't, it. Isn't their basic tactic to be equally violent because they're fighting violence with violence? Yeah. So, but, you know, I, I was sure that you were going to win. I mean, let me take you back to so that was night. I. I, know. <laughs> I know. But I was on the way to winning. I thought I was going to win. But for that intervention, I would have won. I would have won but for Jim Comey's letter. Absent that, I I believe and I think the evidence shows I would have won. But for that Comey letter, she would have won. If the election been on October 27th, I'd be your president. You no, know, he didn't win the popular vote. He squeaked through in the Electoral College. We did win, in fact. Well, I won the popular vote. I did win the women's vote. I got more white women votes than Barack Obama did. Or I not. won three million more votes than the other guy. Right. Remember, I did win more than three million votes than my opponent. He should worry less about the elections and my winning the popular vote. We won the popular vote, so uh, significantly she would have won. I would have won. I would have won. I would have won. Bonfire. Guess I'm a bad liar. Now, for the record, I didn't comprise all the... I would have won, I would have won, I would have won. I did put it to, I'm a bad liar though. So I take full credit of laying it over the top of that. And that's just one week of her talking. God knows how long that list will get because she said it over and over and over and more. There's another one that's going to come up and I'll play it at the end of this little segue uh, that just cracked me up. But... Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened, has put some serious unintentional hilarity on full display. And here's another for the list of reasons the book should be in the humor section at bookstores. This is literally a real thing. I'm a lot better than I usually give him credit for, but it's true that I've always been more comfortable talking about others rather than myself. That made me an effective political spouse, surrogate, and officeholder, but I had to adjust when I became a candidate. Barton Swaim, Hillary Clinton says this in her third lengthy 
memoir, which made me really think about it. How arrogant do you have to be to do three biographies? Three. And I haven't looked up the stats. I will in a bit. Live. But, God, you're arrogant. Gene Simmons even came in. It's President Trump. Some people like him. Some people not. But you have to respect Electoral College and the people of America. And the duly elected. They duly elected the man. Because within all of this, she is literally saying there should not be Electoral College. It's a thing of the past. Which is to be expected. When you lose an election, that's what they're going to say. But yeah, you you watch. There's going to be a constitutional Congress. They're going to try to do this, and it's going to fail just like the ERA. The ERA failed because it wasn't even needed. But it, it'll never make it because people aren't stupid. They don't want New York and Los Angeles to pick the fucking president, especially when New York and Los Angeles are now going to become Pretty much non-resident states. Yeah, because you wait till what California did. Shell Atkinson on media covering the poll. This is from a long article on the Hill. There are two things we could do to provide more meaningful reporting. First, when addressing polls on political topics, we should disclose the breakdown of Democrat and Republican up front. To state the obvious findings from a sample that's made up of 98% Republican will be entirely different than finding from 98% Democrat. How can meaning be put behind results on any political topic without the partisan makeup? Second, our reporting could include opposing findings and trends. They exist, for example, in the most recent Pew poll, three-quarters of Republicans and Republican leaders support a border wall, and that support has grown substantially in recent months. Conservative Republican support for the wall was up nine points as Trump was elected, from 71 to 80. But you literally... Breaks down how the one Pew's running that there is no need for the border wall was 38% Democrat, 30% Republican, the rest unaffiliated. So of course it's going to say they don't want it. But we've been beating that drum for a long time, folks. PolitiFact, the show, once again, as we say on the show, is not a unbiased source, says they find no fault in Hillary Clinton's book. No lies. It's all true. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And to what I said, Kate McKinnon's little hallelujah bullshit, yeah, hell, Carmen, this is one of many, one of my post-campaign ritual every month or so, I rewatch Kate McKinnon as Hillary singing Leonard Cohen's hallelujah, and I cry. Jason, the counter moonbat, says everything that's wrong in America in one tree, and it's true. Yeah. Then they break it down. A lot of people have been taking, talking about tears and crying as Hillary Clinton rounds the country on her What Happened book tour. But the thought of a man being brought to tears because she watched, he watched Kate, well, she watched, because that would be true, Kate McKinnon's maudlin post-election turn as Hillary singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah is just too much. If only our man there was a little stronger, he'd been able to, to hold back those tears. According to her book, Hillary herself managed to, if only barely... And this is what it is. But I spent plans plans on the Saturday after the election. I turned on Saturday Night Live and watched Kate McKinnon open the show with the impression of me one more time. She sat in a grand piano, and played Hallelujah, the haunting, beautiful song by Leonard Cohn, who had died a few days before. As she sang, I seemed like she was fighting back tears, 
listening, so was I. I did my best. It wasn't much, blah, blah, blah. At the end, Kate, as Hillary, turned the camera and said, I'm not giving up, and neither should you. I prayed a lot. I can almost see the cynics roll their eyes, but pray I did, fervently, as I remember ever doing. To Satan? Hmm? Yeah. This was tweeted by Chris Donovan, Kate McKinnon wins Emmy. Here's how Hillary Clinton in her book describes watching it. Daily Mail, Hillary Clinton reveals she fought back tears watching Kate McKinnon impression. It was all over the net. My name is Earl at the Boss Man 102 pretty much sums up my feelings on this. Probably more tears than she shed on a 9-11-12 hashtag Benghazi. And I, I fucking love that. I love it. Because it sums it up. But here's some more media fawning over Hillary. And we'll go into Jamel Hill. Um, let me start with um, something that just happened tonight. North Korea tonight just shot another missile over mm-hmm. Japan. They've done this twice in two and a half weeks now. Mm-hmm. Um, you have said, uh, since you've been talking about your book and since people have had the chance to talk to you about current affairs, you've said that President Trump is being played by Kim Jong-un, that Trump is somehow playing right into his hand. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? You have described um, this week, you've said that it seems to you that Defense Secretary Jim Mattis may be effectively operating as both Defense Secretary and Secretary of State. You, of course, are one of the highest profile Secretaries of State we've ever had. Uh, Rex Tillerson is among the lowest, certainly the lowest mm-hmm. in modern times. Mm-hmm. He has advocated a 30% cut to his own mm-hmm. agency. He's left dozens of senior jobs unfilled, as you said today. Uh, he told State Department staff that his biggest goal for the State Department is uh, efficiency, and that's why he wants to shrink the State Department so much. Uh, they've even stopped doing daily press briefings. Given the risk of nuclear war with North Korea, given the sorts of um, diplomatic challenges that we've got around the country and around the world, why do you think they are hollowing up the State Department? I also feel like the sexism that you faced as a political barrier in 2016 was considerably worse than the sexism you faced as a barrier in 2008. And I know in 2016 you got further, but I feel like what I saw directed at you as a public figure was more vitriolic mm-hmm. and frankly more rhetorically violent mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. than what I saw eight years earlier, mm-hmm. which implies to me, I mean, maybe that's the general election versus the Democratic primary, but um, I like to think that things get better over time, too, and I don't see that as having happened with you. And then just watching these interviews, and I, you know, I looked up at the interview, it, there were... I could point to probably three or four interviews that I did at Trump Tower that looked very similar, soft lighting, you know, in, in the setting, and 50 or more probably from other networks. Hillary Clinton didn't do that during the election. Donald Trump, would you would call him up and say, can you do an interview? Can we come to Trump Tower? And he would say, yes. Hillary Clinton didn't do that during the election. He flooded the zone. She picked and chose who she wanted to do an interview with, and she didn't think you were a substantial enough figure or did not, you know, want to do it. She just wouldn't, she wouldn't do it. That's her fault. That's not the media's fault who she's blaming. Donald Trump was on Fox. Donald Trump was on NBC. Donald Trump was on MSNBC. Donald Trump was on ABC. Donald Trump was on CBS. Donald Trump was on every single person who pretty much asked him for an interview. Interesting and unpredictable. And, 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 and fought back 
when, when there were huge accusations against him, and he fought back. Listen, I have to give credit where credit is due. Some, I'm sure he didn't, initially he didn't want to do an interview with me because my last interview with him was on the night that bin Laden was killed, and we had a, a huge back and forth about the birther issue. And so I, I, we, my, I spoke with him, my producer spoke with him, my booker spoke with him, and we talked about it, and there I was doing interviews with him. Hillary Clinton never, ever did that. She was too safe. She didn't even hit back at him as much as she could have during the debates. That's her fault. That's not anybody else's fault but hers. April? Oh, wow. It's the well, truth. Well, first of all, Don, um, I didn't get in it. Well, wait a minute. I didn't get an interview with Donald Trump. I asked, and I continue to ask, and I haven't gotten one yet. So um, you're wrong on that piece. But let me tell you where you're wrong. Well, right. not, not exactly, <laughs> but go on. Go on. I take your point. <laughs> well, let me say this. Um, Hillary Clinton, I'm not going to say she played it safe. I'm going to say she played it the way it had been played before. Donald Trump came in like a bull in a china shop and just took it over. He changed the game. And, you know, she and other people kept saying, you know, he's not going to win. He's not going to win. But he won. Okay. But and that's it was point. not expected. April, she so was she played, to, women, she played the no game. She played exists. the game. You write about it in, in the book. But what you don't mention in the book is what you said to your husband when you heard about that meeting. I didn't hear about it for days because it was so inconsequential to both of them. And then when I heard about it, I didn't really think much of it. And I think this was a rationalization that was used for being able to do what he did. But, you know, what's important to me going forward is, as I say, I think it's important to focus on what happened because lessons can be learned. But the more important lessons that will affect our democracy going forward are not about him and his investigation. He, I think, forever changed history, but that's in the past. Mm -hmm. Brian, the White House press secretary, you know, and you've been covering this, uh, said that it was a fireable, when asked about it, it was a fireable offense. He said it during a press briefing. Um, did Sanders overstep, do you think, with that comment? Do you think that the she White overstepped House what's normal from from normal White House press secretaries? If you were to think back to to Reagan or Clinton or Bush or Obama or any past modern presidency, we wouldn't hear a White House press secretary say, oh, that's a fireable offense with that person on TV said. However, we're in a very different terrain, a very different place now with Sarah Sanders. Uh, instead of instead of saying, oh, she has a right to free speech. She said it's a fireable offense by ESPN. Now, ESPN is not firing Jamil Hill. I think it's important to note they are standing by her. Yes, they say that she regrets it, and yes, they've accepted her apology. They're trying to move on here. Uh, I think that's noteworthy, given all the various outcomes that there could have been in this case. But it is chilling to hear a press secretary it's, say, oh, it's, it's a fireable it, offense, uh, yeah. just to express an opinion, even if it's an outrageous I'll opinion. let you jump in, Ben. All right, let, let, let's take it back to ESPN here for just a moment. Um, <laughs> you're a sports anchor. You anchor Sports Center. Let's be clear. One, she's not a victim, and some people said it's so mean that people are talking about her. You, you, you go out there, you publicly are the face of their biggest primetime show, Sports Center. You tweet out that you think the President of the United States of America is a, is a white supremacist, and anyone that basically voted for him is also a white supremacist. And her follow-up tweets, you're not a victim when you take the heat. The second thing is this. If you do sports, do sports. If you represent a sports network, <laughs> and then you go over to politics, and you call the President of the United States of America a white supremacist, 
You're not a victim. You're an idiot for doing it. I think my point is this. If ESPN says, let me me finish this because this is important. I don't think anybody should be fired as long as it's a consistent across the board policy of ESPN that you can go out Mm -hmm. there and say anything you want to politically if you work for them because there's a double standard. Sports Center and, and ESPN, if this was someone saying this about Barack Obama, all of us know they would have been fired instantly. There would have been a public apology from ESPN and ABC. They would have said this is not reflective. Now, two things in that soundbite. To Hillary, that the Lynch-Clinton bill type meeting was inconsequential. You might want to ask the voters about that, young lady. Because I, yeah, that's not true. And, of course, CNN going crazy about that. I didn't hear what they're hearing that she said that she should be fired. Um, but they're making a big deal out of whatever art, how she articulated it. And I will just say to you, Brian Seltzer from reliable sources was neither reliable or a source. And a guy that has been bashing Republicans back to his college days, people were fired under Obama. That's the difference. And if it isn't that big a deal and it's not hurting ratings, why did John Skipper put out another one? ESPN is not a political organization. I want to remind everyone about fundamental principles at ESPN. This is what he said. ESPN is about sports. Last year we broadcast over 16,000 sports events. We show highlights and report scores and tell stories and break down plays. And we talk about sports all day, every day. Of course, sports is intertwined with society and culture. So sticking to sports It's not so simple. When athletes engage on issues or when protests happen in games, we cover important comment on that. We are, among other things, the largest, most accomplished, and highly resourced sports news organization. We take great pride in our news organization. We have programs on which we discuss and even debate sports, as well as the issues that intersect with sports. Fan themselves love to debate and discuss sports. ESPN is not a political organization. Where sports and politics intersect, no one is told what view they must express. At the same time, ESPN has values. We are committed to inclusion in an environment of tolerance where everyone is diverse workforce has the equal opportunity to succeed. We consider this human, not political. Consequently, we insist that no one be denigrated for who they are, including their gender, ethnicity, religious beliefs, or sexual identity. We have issues of significant debate in our country at this time. Our employees or citizens inappropriately want to participate in public discord. That can create a conflict for our public-faced talent between their work and their personal point of view. Given this reality, we have a social media policies which require people to understand that social platforms are public and their comments on them will reflect on ESPN. At a minimum, comments should not be inflammatory or personal. We had a violation of those standards in recent days, and our handling of this is a private manner. As always, in each circumstance, we look, at, look to do what is best for our business. In light of recent events, we need to remind ourselves that we are a journalistic organization and that we should not do anything that undermines that position. We also know that ESPN is a special place and that our success is based on you and your colleagues' works. Let's not let the public narrative rewrite who we are or what we stand for. Let's not be divided in that pursuit. I'll need your support. Hope you are to succeed. The problem is, ex-athletes, Johnny Damon, I want to watch sports for sports. If ESPN turns into political arena, I know a lot of people just won't watch. He was asked that on Fox and Friends. And 
I think this is hitting them in the pocketbook. They are down in viewers. I think this is more than they think it is. And I think Jamel Hill is now rightly being the scapegoat. But the problem is when you fire Linda Cohen for being conservative, you fire all these conservatives like Ditka. You got a problem over there, ESPN. You're hypocrites. And I say to all the resistance members and all the media, people were fired for less than what Jamel Hill did during Obama. Just saying he's a bad president got you labeled as a racist. And you in the media and you hypocritical fucking motherfucking resistance people, you went to the nines to shut down dissent on Obama. Saying Benghazi was a racist. Saying Fast and Furious was a racist. Saying Chicago was a racist. Saying fucking IRS scandal, which wasn't a scandal, surprisingly, after his election, you know, he's out of office. That's not a scandal when it's one of the most huge, it's the hugest one of my lifetime. If you really look at scandals, that the IRS was abusing power for political purposes on behalf of a political party is huge. Huge, folks. If Trump even talks to the IRS head, you watch how they play it in the media today. But if it wasn't a thing and this isn't normal, Brian Seltzer, why is Skipper covering ass like crazy? Because maybe she should have been fired. I'm going to keep on top of the ratings on this. I've never watched it, nor will I. Like I said, Mondays, which yesterday I did not because my Packers got fucking scunionized, and Fridays are the only time I watch ESPN. And I watch NFL highlights now. There is no politics over there. California decided sanctuary cities wasn't enough. California lawmakers approved sanctuary state bill limiting police cooperation with U.S. immigration officials. The head of ICE, Thomas Homan, This is in regards to this bill. Time and time again, we've seen tragic consequences because local jurisdictions decline to cooperate with U.S. immigration and custom enforcement. By passing this bill, California politicians have chosen to prioritize politics over public safety. Disturbingly, the legislation serves to codify a dangerous policy that deliberately obstructs our country's immigration laws and shelters serious criminal alien offenders. ICE's goal is to build cooperative, respectful relationships with our law enforcement partners to help prevent dangerous criminal aliens from being released back into the streets. Sorry, a cat just jumped on my keyboard and about knocked over my computer. Into the streets to potentially victimize our communities. This bill severely undermines that effort and will make California communities less safe. They don't give a fuck. They just don't give a fuck. They are all about giving them benefits, health care, driver's license. And I tell you, as a flyover American, I will never step foot in California again. Ever. Ever. In 2003, when I got stationed out there in the Mojave Desert, it was out of control. It was like going to Little Athena in Miami. Nobody spoke English. 
let it go to the foreigners. And if you live there and you're a red stater or you're just a normal human being who believe in the rule of law and the Constitution of the United States of America, get the fuck out. To a music break. And we'll go into our tweets of the day.
Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. Tweets of the day. This is from CNN Piece of Shit. They have a CNN logo with a piece of shit on it, which I think is really funny. Uh, at Reno Markey. Uh, his tweet, according to liberals, I'm Nazi homophobic, white supremacist, Islamophobic, anti-Mexico, Trump-loving, ra- racist cracker. Just another day on Twitter with a nice little gif, liberalism is a mental disease. And I, I think that's fucking pretty true. I mean, you say anything other than the the religion of progressivism, that's what you're called. Vox, the core idea of this bill is that government can and should pay for basically all medical treatment for everyone. Mr. X, I'm a veteran and I pay for my own care because the VA is incompetent. Your government health care will be worse. Which, without the sound effect, is our tweet of the day, because he's spot on. Another one, the core fact is that government taxpayers can't afford to pay the bill. Bernie Sanders even said so. And this is from a book he did. But I think we, we understand is that unless we change the funding system and the control mechanism in this country to do that, for example, if we expanded Medicaid to everybody, Sanders added, giving everybody a medical card, we would be spending such an astronomical sum of money that, you know, we would bankrupt the nation. Bankrupt the nation. He said it. So why is it, why is it that he's proposing the bill that would bankrupt the nation? Oh, I know. He wants to run for president again. Collins took over the Twitterverse with funny pictures that really kind of mock all the liberalism. And it's Trump saving cats during the hurricane and i think that's really funny to our hate tweets without the bumper even though i love that bumper it's my favorite scott d workin let me repeat trump thought it was funny to tweet out a video of a woman being hit by a projectile that at that speed would have killed her brenda van may nurturing sexual harassment and violence toward women illegal in u.s workplace criminal opponents Neon Taser. This is why I can almost never get on the Trump criticism bandwagon. Can't just say it was dumb. Have to concoct a gender violence narrative. And he just liked a meme. And once again, memes are truth to the left now. And it's just really disturbing. (laughs) A meme. But Trump just put down the fucking Twitter, bro. Put it down. New Republic. Trump isn't just the first white president. As Tanishi Coates said, he's also the first male president. 
Takes good old-fashioned gumption to put out a take supposedly even hotter than whatever Tanishi Coates most recent published. But Jeet here gave it a shot Thursday. We won't mess around trying to parse this 500,000-word essay on Hillary Clinton's huge and lasting legacy when the theses is right there in plain sight. Just as one could not vote for Trump without implicitly condoning his racism, one could not vote for him without implicitly condoning his misogyny. Get it? A vote for Trump was an explicit attempt to undo the legacy of America's first black president. Voting against Hillary is a vote against the first female president. Therefore, Trump wasn't just another white man who got elected. He was elected specifically because, wait for it, he's a white man and the first white president. Grow the fuck up! We are 11 days from being 10 months into the presidency, and you won't leave it alone. The first white, the first male, oh Jesus. To some hate towards lefties, Glenn Thrush, hey folks, I've decided to delete my Twitter account at midnight. Too much of a distraction. DM me for contact info. Thanks for reading. Aaron Blank, this is a massive loss to Twitter and all of us. (laughs) Stephen Miller, this is the best thing to come out of Trump's presidency so far. Jim Tretcher, all those people he's blocked all for nothing. And I, uh, that, wow. Wow. I love that tweet because he blocked me the first time I responded to him. And I didn't even curse, but he blocked. He blocked anybody who disagreed. Him, Chuck Toad, all them fucks. The only one that does it is Nicole Wallace, surprisingly. I've been nuking her on Twitter. She doesn't block, because I don't think she even reads it. But Max Peters gets to the point. Never forget, from John Podesta Gmail to gtthrust at politico.com, OTR, no problems here. His reply, Glenn Thrush, no worries, because I've become a hack. I will send you the whole section that pertains to you. Please don't share or tell anyone I did this. Tell me if I fucked up anything. And he handed his whole article. Just remember that. Just remember, Glenn Thrush, who's now the New York Times, was emailing to the Clinton campaign for approval to print his articles. Yet he is still a, just a fucking, oh, God, our fucking media is horrible. Hypocrisy! This is when I can totally, like, prove that my tinfoil hat is made of gold. NBC MSDNC creates its own liberal media reporting unit. Like, they need more, but whatever. NBC News announced it will create a more formal media news unit like CNN's as media credibility is under attack. New York Post writer 
Claire Atkinson will head the unit, but the remaining names look pretty liberal, starting with perpetually Fox News busting Gabriel Sherman, BuzzFeed editor Ben Smith, who can't find anyone in the media who sounds like a liberal activist. This team brings together outstanding in-house NBC News and MSDNC talent with outside contributors who are among the most respected and most followed editors and journalists in this space wrote NBC News President Noah Oppenheimer, MSDNC President Phil Griffin, and NBC News Digital Chief Nick Ashim in an internal menu, menu, memo excuse me, that TV Newser posted. Yeah, that's a real thing. The All-Star team also includes former Los Angeles Time media reporter James Rainey, who's been reporting for MSDNC for a while, and former Time Incorp editor-in-chief John Huey, recently seen on CNN's Reliable Sources, agreeing that host Brian Seltzer about all the usual characterization of President Trump as a dangerous demagogue and authoritarian figure. Variety suggested this kind of media reporting on media is now rewarding. The industry is also in the midst of an era when gazing at its own navel seems to bring more tangible rewards than it was in the past. In a nation driven by politics, discussions of Fox News, MSDNC, CNN, The New York Times, Breibart, and other media sources often sparked a torrent of clicks and page views, many of which can be monetized by throwing the numbers to media buyers demanding better prices for the audience has been assembled. I, I want to hit something on that before we even go forward. Listen, folks. Um, under Obama, HuffPo was brought to the table. Unlike Breitbart, HuffPo is a huge media machine. All the time liberal. And now all of a sudden, Breitbart's brought into the mix. I might cover a Breitbart article 1 in 90 on the show. And it's referenced elsewhere. I don't even go to Breitbart. I don't know anybody who does go to Breitbart. To make them this media monster that they're saying because Bannon was in the White House is just a joke. HuffPo was in the room with the president. First questions. And was made a media source by Obama. Trump didn't make Breibart a media source. The media made Breibart a media source because they want to keep going, look at the all right which is a made-up term. This is uber-hypocrisy. And I was going to cover it in the Hillary section, but it goes in hypocrisy. CBS on Amazon spiking one-star Hillary reviews. Wow. Yeah. The, the, I, did, did, did you think Amazon wouldn't be doing that? I mean, I love Amazon. I'm a Prime member. I buy everything on Amazon now. Watch Amazon video religiously, but this doesn't surprise me. Two out of three networks on Thursday night and Friday morning yawned at Amazon blatant censorship of negative reviews for Hillary Clinton's new book, What Happened? Only CBS this morning noticed with a scant 27 seconds of coverage that the website is wiping out one-star reviews. Co-host Nora O'Donnell offered no chiding, and she marveled. Amazon acknowledges removing one-star reviews of Hillary Clinton's new book, Wow. She uncritically parroted. Amazon said it has mechanisms to place in place to ensure that the voices of the many do not drown out the voices of the few. With no sense of irony, O'Donnell noted, what happened is published by Simon & Schuster, division of CBS, and is currently has five stars on Amazon. Well, yeah, when you remove the bad reviews, it's easy to garner five stars. Despite a combined six hours of airtime, ABC, NBC on Friday skipped the aggressive act 
of liberal censorship. On Amazon, the book currently has 764 accepted reviews with an average of 4.8 stars out of 5. Amazon claims it only 4% negative reviews with 92% being 5 stars. There are views like this one. I wrote a verified purchase review and I have been deleted three times. If Amazon doesn't like what we have to say, don't ask for input. And this one, Hillary, please stop deleting my truthful review. I wasted 14 bucks and I didn't like your book. Okay, thanks. Yet there are clearly minority responses that survived the purge. As the MRC's Tim Graham pointed out, it seems that many of the five-star reviews are based on love for the author, just like one-star reviews come from an aversion to Clinton, but only one-star reviews are being deleted. The Telegraph reported, few of the one-star reviews remain on the website. Reports and screen grabs show that reviewers use the space to criticize the former First Lady and spread conspiracy theories about her and Bill Clinton. One one-star review, which remains on the website at the time of writing, Reads, read all the promoted promotional excerpts, which combine some close to book length. Pretty good novel. It is fiction, isn't it? Surely someone is playing a joke. Amazon has rarely moved to delete reviews so publicly, although in November negative comments under a book by anti-Trump broadcaster Megan Kelly appeared to be removed by the retailer. Yeah. So since the, the time of this article, which was on uh, Monday, I believe, I go to a 91% five-star. There's a 1,201 reviews, still a 4.8. 3% are four-stars, 5% are one-stars, and there's a couple two-stars. There's no three-stars. Um, pretty much sums up the book. This is a two-star I'm a nonpartisan who's actually read this book and I agree with many of the negative reviews here. This pretty much sums up the book. One, it was my turn. Two, the campaign was absolutely impeccable without flaws whatsoever. Three, it was everyone else's fault. Another two-star, tell more about HRC than about the election. I voted for HRC. I bought the book. I read the book. The two-star reviews represent what I generally think about it. A good 75% of the book has nothing to do with what happened. Most of the book is HRC telling about her political career, her wonderful family, her mother, her wonderful life with Bill, how much she cares about people, especially children, her wonderful, hardworking staff. This is fine, but it's a lot of why, a lot to wade through to get to the meat of the book. And once you get to the meat, it's pretty cheap cut. HRC lays out a good case against FBI Director James Comey and against Russia fake news items that saturated social media and against the media for fixating on the non-scandal of her email while ignoring her policies and plan for America. I came away with the book with a finer understanding of how these forces worked against her. She also had a choice words for her opponent, the primary Sanders, whom she believes gave munition to Trump. She is less convincing in this front as virtually nothing Sanders said against HRC during the primary battle was new. His criticism of HRC was general taking talking points before Sanders ever entered the contest. The book whitewashes the DNC action against Sanders during the primary actions that turned a good number of Sanders supporters uh, good supporters HRC continues the word odious Bernie bros uh, she skims over failure to deliver a simple inspirational village, uh, the whole thing. Um, it falls compared to Trump's Make America. She talks to programs she and Bill worked out her share investment comes with all Americans the way Alaska shares oil revenues with citizens. It calls it Alaska 
for America. My God, what a horrible name, but she doesn't see it. She's tone deaf when it comes to language. She's also blind to the issues of optics. She acknowledges that her highly paid and secretive speeches to Wall Street look bad, but she far underestimates just how negatively those speeches affected her image. She speaks in the book proudly of the designer she is designing her clothes, but seems oblivious to the way those very same clothes impacted the unemployed formerly working class people admit to admit to wooing unsuccessful. There's no doubt but that the big forces worked against Hillary Clinton's candidacy, but major force opposition opposed Trump also. <clears throat> what is telling in HRC's memoir and analysis of her own blind spot, her weakness as a campaigner fails to inspire her over-reliance on her status as first female president nominee for major party. 53% of white women voted for Trump, but HRC doesn't examine why. And her refusal to acknowledge how the DNC during the primary alienated the progressive voters she was later need to win the general election, even though we had figured out now indicates that 12% of Sanders supporters went over to Trump, where in 2008, after HRC lost the primary, 24% of her supporters went over to McCain. In other words, Sanders supporters were still more supportive of HRC than HRC supporters were Obama. So around and around we go. Some reviews state that HRC blames everyone but herself for a loss. I think this statement is a bit strong, but certainly she turns her back, at least in this book, to enough of her own failings and those of the DNC to earn the criticism. So there is my review of what happened. As a Democrat, as someone who voted for Hillary Clinton, as someone who bought the book from Amazon and read every word. Another one. What happened to her negative reviews? Looks like Amazon is censoring. Another one. I bought, I purchased this book for Kindle format and read the whole thing. I habitually purchase a lot of stuff from Amazon. I've written a bunch of other reviews for this one. I've been a Democrat my whole life and have only very, very occasionally voted for Republican or third-party candidates. You see, everyone that's getting through is a Democrat or saying they are. I voted for Bill in both presidential elections and voted for Hillary against Trump last year. I met both the Clintons a couple of times. It's been several hours, a few occasions of very small private parties where they're in attendance a few years after they left the White House. I'm not a fan of Donald Trump at all and oppose almost everything that he's trying to do. I used to live in Chicago, but most recently been living in an intersection of Iowa and Wisconsin, two states that very well could have gone Democrat, but of course did not. I saw both Sanders and Trump speak in primary events and then went to Trump's thank you event in Des Moines just to try to get a handle how people in the heartland were thinking about it. It seemed to me the media were getting it totally wrong. I think that there are some good things to be said about Hillary Clinton. I do think she's smart. I do think she's a diligent and hard worker. I do think that she really cares about children and other about a few other pet issues. I do think that she's been attacked unfairly on a lot of occasions, and I that being a woman has made things more difficult for her than they would be for a man. But still, this book seems to crystallize for me a lot of problems that I have with Hillary Clinton at this moment in time and the problems that I have with the Democratic Party in general. Perhaps the biggest problems that I have with the book is that I believe the title is misleading. Although Clinton does attempt in the book to explain why she lost, in the end, she really seems to have no idea if instead the book had been called What a Campaign in 2016 Election Was Like for Me, likely I would be comfortable giving the book another star. Because that's pretty much solely what this book is about. This is Hillary telling a detail what it was like to campaign for president. Where she ate, where she stayed, who she met, and the kind of gifts she bought for family members. How much time she had to spend maintaining her appearance. Blah, 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 blah. What the book does not do is provide any reason or pervasive discussion on what I see as the key issues that political leaders need to be discussing in regards to 2016 election. Such as why is it that both the Democrat and Republican parties nominate 
candidates with such abysmal popularity ratings? <clears throat> Why is the majority of people are so unhappy with both parties? Why, what is it about Bernie Sanders that makes him continue to be most popular, well-known politician in America? And what way might the Democratic Party change in order to be likely to win elections? Or in other ways, might the Republican Party change in order to prevent people like Trump from winning? Clinton does not focus at all on any of these questions except in the most superficial way. There's nothing on them here that has not already been hashed to death in Washington Post, owned by CEO Jeff Bezos of Amazon, and other newspapers that are considered to be very strong bias in terms of Democratic Party elites, who chose Clinton to be nominee. In my opinion, the biggest question that Clinton does not discuss at all in this book is how the Democratic Party has turned all its focus towards the goal of making rich people richer. Okay. Instead, she spends a good chunk of book criticizing Sanders, trying to figure out how she could have effect, acted differently during the campaign order more effective do away with them. Not once in the book does she consider the possibility that perhaps the reason the Sanders is more popular is because the Democratic Party, as well as the Republican Party, has focused too much on attention on the 1%. I'm not saying that I would have expected her to reach that conclusion, but it does not seem to be a question that even has entered her mind. In general, the impression that I get from this book about Clinton in general, in terms of her political life and her personal life, is that she believes she is right about everything, that she is very, very defensive about the idea that she is not right about everything, and that she is very slow to change in the face of new information. Perhaps it's just because I'm a lot more focused on diet than most people, but the idea of her eating egg white omelets every morning really seems odd to me. Even the mainstream media seem convinced that egg loaves are not something to be concerned about and very well may be part, best part of the egg at this point. Later, she says that when reporters get sick, she insists that they drink ginger ale and eat crackers and send the State Department doctor to treat them with Cipro and anti-nausea drugs. All of those are the last thing that I would... Okay, this is all just devolving. Anyway, I'm going to do on the next podcast, because I just kind of got off track here. Um, I'm going to do some more of these. I'm going to rip through and find the best ones that I believe, um, positive and negative. Because I'm guaranteeing deep in here is she's the greatest thing that ever happened. Oh, my God. It's so horrible. To other hypocrisy... No, I wasted six minutes. Jediah Bila shocked audience when she departed The View on Monday. Clinton was on the show last Wednesday promoting her book, What Happened, when conservative Bila called her tone deaf and asked the former presidential candidate a tough question. To be fair, it hasn't just been Republicans who have taken issue with the writing of this book. Some Democrats have come out as well, Bila said to Clinton. Former campaign surrogates of yours, former fundraisers, have said this book puts us in the past and we want to move forward. We want to figure out where to take the party, how to succeed in the future. And this places us in the past. How do you respond to Democrats also coming out in criticism of you writing this? I think that first they should read the book, Clinton answered. There was a lot of staff who were upset about how the interview was handled, says the source, speculating that View wants the former Secretary of State to appear on the show multiple times. They had a lot to say to Jediah about calming things down. We're told that Bila was signed for the full season, but she left on her own accord. The source added there were some things making her uncomfortable about the scenes, but she loves the cast. She seemed to be looking forward to sharing in view in a world where there seems to be only one world view. Let's get to the point. No conservative thinker has stayed on the view because they don't want one. And what does it say about a show that has four liberals and one conservative? Oh, wait a minute. That's CNN. MSNBC never even has a conservative on. They bring a Republican on and, and throws fastballs at them all day. That's our media environment. 
So, we'll go into our stats with a nice media mash. This is Bourdain saying he'd serve fucking poison to Trump. And Brooke Baldwin over there on CNN saying she does not have a point of view. Oh, really? Would you be down to do a no reservations North Korea? Uh, no. No? No, because A, I don't make that series anymore. Left that network years ago. And B, there's uh, nothing they're going to let you see in North Korea. You'd never go there. I know, but you'd never go there and would assemble the food and stuff. You'd like don't a special. Would, I mean, most of the population are starving. Don't you think that would be kind of bad taste? Well, I know, I know, but the, I mean, the president at least bad looks idea. like a bit of a foodie. <laughs> the president's a bit of a foodie. Like, I was reading that he likes cheese Trump? and wine. No, the president of North Korea. Kim Jong Un. He's a chubby, evil little fuck. <laughs> I agree. agree. Nobody else eats. <laughs> if, um, if Trump. And Kim Jong-un, we're going to have a bit of a summit to try and mend relations. And they want to adjudicate us. What would you serve? Hemlock. <laughs> I saw that um, Twitter took down Bourdain Books. Yeah. Because of Adios, motherfucker. What the hell? Why would they... Why would they do that? I don't know. Apparently Twitter's cool with Nazis, but not with the uh, motherfucker. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of people tweet... I mean, the president tweets, like, horrible stuff. Yet, you tweeting the title of your book... They suspended and it's still suspended to this day. What can I tell you? <laughs> how are they? How are you going to get it up and running again, or do you even care? Um, on balance, it kind of worked out for me. <laughs> oh, did? Congressman, I want to ask you um, a little bit about the hurricane relief effort and what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, out of Florida, the islands, as well as Texas and Louisiana. Um, Moody Analytics just came out with an estimate this week that the cost of the two storms from property loss and lost output, the two storms together, could be between 150 and $200 billion. If you don't get a straight, another, in, the coming, in the coming days or weeks, if it's not a straight hurricane relief bill, are you going to vote against that hurricane funding as well? No, I mean, that hasn't even come yet up yet, so I don't know why the vote, what we're well, concerned they're very about. Right likely, now, no, but yeah. I mean, they're very likely to need more federal funding. The well, yeah, first I mean, tranche, so I, I mean, even the first yeah. bit was described as just a first first amount that was going to go to hurricane yeah. funding. I, yeah, I see have what to you're getting at, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, every, every Republican last week, just to be clear on this, right, every Republican uh, was going to vote for hurricane relief. Every Republican was going to vote for uh, raising the debt ceiling. The problem was the intellectually uh, questionable linkage between the two and saying that we have to protect the Treasury bill or something ab absurd like that, right? We were all going to vote for all of that, but it was linking it together with no statement on, on fiscal discipline moving forward. The, the national debt just crossed tri $20 trillion this week. Right, and so Congressman, no you ended position, up voting for, right. you, you say you support both, funding right. for hurricane victims and raising a debt ceiling as long as, you know, and you can, those, but those need to be separate. You ended up voting against that deal that was struck um, by the president, but that's the important bit of this. This deal no, no, that no, you voted no, against, hey, Kate, this is a deal that was yeah. struck by the Republican president and Democrats. Yeah, well, just, just so you got it straight, I voted for the hurricane uh, relief the week before, the same number and everything. Uh, that's right? what I'm so saying. The, you voted the voting, for the hurricane right, relief. Right. You ended up voting right. against the entire package that came the at package, you that ended right. up being exactly. approved, yep. that ended up being the final vehicle. So you right. ended up voting no on the end on the final vehicle. But that final vehicle, that final package was struck, that deal was struck by the Republican president. 
Yeah, and so our leadership. What do you say to him this time? Yeah, and our. I, I made it very clear. I thought it was intellectually uh, not uh, sustainable, right? And so I, I, I made it clear on that linkage of putting a clean debt ceiling package, which we never would have even put on President Obama's desk, on a Republican's desk. And right, and and most of the Republicans in the conference shared that view. And so, so who's to blame for kids, this intellectual yeah. inhonesty, if you will? Uh, whoever came up with a plan. And so what's always left out from this is the $20 trillion that, so that's going to Does the president well, on, let me, let me, blame let me, on this? Yeah, well, you're asking me for my view. So, if, I mean, I get your view, but let me give you the context. No, no, I don't context. have a view. I'm, I, well, the we, context we here. Yeah, you, the context Congressman, you is, and I understand the yeah. context of, of no, debt ceiling, no, and no. I understand, truly understand your position uh, on the debt ceiling and why you want to have a debate on spending cuts. We just wasted 10 seconds. Let me give you 10 seconds. We're $20 trillion in debt. And we have a hundred trillion dollars, right? I was just at my convocations back home with the kids. The kindergartners are in the class of 2030, they just told me, right? They will graduate from college in 2034. And so if you do know the context, the context is that is the year that Medicare and Social Security are insolvent. I don't think people do know the context. Otherwise, there'd be more urgency and they wouldn't put up with the nonsense we're doing up here on the fiscal front. Right. If, if the press would weigh in on what the damage, it's a guaranteed fiscal crisis in 2034. Guaranteed in law. I'm on the budget committee. We can't touch it. Right. You got to pass in law. So that's that's the context. And so with that, uh, if you ask the average voter, how should you vote on a clean debt ceiling increase with no fiscal discipline whatsoever? The whole country, it's 90 percent. Right. So to my question, does the president deserve some blame here because he's the one who struck the deal? Yeah, I'm, I, on that issue, I totally disagree. Congressman Dave Bratt, always too many questions and not enough time. Come back. to our stats Montana snow 60 days early I don't bring that up to be a climate change global warming cooling whatever the fuck we're calling it denier I'm just saying winter is coming I'm getting wood this week so for those out there if it's already snowing in Montana and it's September freaking 15th when this was written you might want to get your shit in order. I know we stocked up and everything. I don't fuck around. I'm on the border in Tennessee. Lower, you know, I'm on the northwest corner of Tennessee is where I live. And you never know what the fuck you're going to get. One year we're supposed to get two inches of snow. We got 12. And if I didn't have a Jeep, I wouldn't have left my house for a week. Because the cold was with it. And they don't do shit to the roads down here. Nothing. And I live up in the hills, so... Yeah, yeah, you might want to think about that. NFL ratings are also down. In a fractured media environment where award-winning scripted dramas complete, compete for public attention along with goofy cat videos, one of the few things that multi-billion dollar media and entertainment conglomerates could count on to attract millions of viewers and generate the ad revenue that keeps them in business was the NFL. These days, however, the most popular U.S. professional sport isn't such a sure bet. According to Pivotal Research Analysis' Brian Weissner, 
viewership for the NFL was down 14% on year-over-year basis during the first week of the 2017-18 season. That's the lowest level since 2009. As a result, Walt Disney, parent of ESPN, CBS, parent of CBS Money Watch, Fox A, parent 21st Century Fox and Comcast, whose properties include NBC, are in in a bind. They've counted on the NFL to buttress their business's audience for cable and broadcast networks have dwindled in the recent years. It has been an expensive strategy. Fox, CBS, and Comcast signed a $27 billion deal with the NFL for the right to broadcast games through 2022. ESPN reportedly paid $1.9 billion per year for the rights to Monday Night Football, a 73% increase over the previous contract. NBC and CBS signed a $900 million deal in 2016 for the right to broadcast Thursday Night Games. But now they're getting hit. Here's a hint to all of you. Stop focusing on the National Anthem fucking protest on the game. Just don't broadcast the National Anthem. Viewership will improve. Mark my words. It'll happen. I don't even tune in. I'm glad I didn't turn into Sunday Night Football because my Packers got drubbed again. I don't know what it is about Atlanta. It's like fucking the boogeyman. We lost four players. Both tackles went. Jesus, J. Jehoshaphat. It was a mess. College Park, Maryland, we reported this months ago, was going to start letting non-citizens vote in local elections. Yeah, the populace rised up. They're not now, so I want to put that in our stats. And then to Mother, which we hinted about in the beginning. Is the worst movie of the year, maybe Century, by Rex Reed. From the idiotic drug addict hokum Requiem for a Dream to the overrated, overwrought, and overhyped Black Swan, which I call the lavish stage repulsion in toe shoes, the films of whack job Darren Arskovsky have shown a dark passion for exploring twisted souls and torment. But nothing he's done before to poison the ozone layer prepared me for Mother, an exercise in torture and mysterious over the top that I don't know whether to scream or laugh out loud. Stealing ideas from Polanski, Fellini, and Kubrick, he's Jerry built an absurd Freudian nightmare. What is more, that is more wet dream than a bad dream with the subtlety of a chainsaw. This delusional freak show is two hours pretentious twaddling that tackles religion, paranoia, lust, rebellion, and a thirst for blood in a circus of grotesque debauchery to prove that being a woman requires emotional sacrifice and physical agony at the cost of everything else in life, including life itself. This guy goes on for fucking pages. He gave him zero of four stars. Zero. With so much crap around to clog the drain, I hesitate to label it the worst movie of the year when worst movie of the century fits it even better. Is his closing. And then comes out its opening weekend, Mother dies with F cinema score and 7.5 million start as it becomes biggest ever September release with the 218 million. Well, it's clear moviegoers officially hate Darren Arnoskovsky's, I can't say his name, mother. The film scored a rare F grade from CinemaScore audiences, and there were many rivals heading into the weekend who were expected that type of reaction. The bold Jennifer Lawrence pick crashed well below its 11 million projection with an estimate of 7.5 and third as of Sunday morning. 
Compared to a wide release in their first weekend, 1,000 plus theaters. It's the lowest opening for Loris, even lower than her 12, 2012 relative, relativity horror film, The House at the End of the Street, which made 12.3 million. And I don't care what you say, just like why the Emmys are going down, the NFL's going down, and Mother sucks. When you get on TV and you say, Mother Nature's bringing our wrath on us because we voted for Trump, people don't go. It's not about politics. It's not about the cult of Trump. It's about more people are like me than you, resistance members. We go to the TV, we go to the theater to get away from politics. When you put politics in our way, we go to Netflix and just get around all the gay shows that they shoved down your neck all day. Chicago records 500's homicide for 2017. Milestone follows a particularly deadly weekend that saw at least 10 people killed and 31 others wounded. Before people call me a racist, that's pretty fucking horrible. The Mully Milestone amid a particularly deadly week that saw 10 people and 31 others wounded and shooting across the city. The weekend killing lifted the city to 500 for the year. So far, according to the data from the Chicago Tribune, Chicago police said that as of Sunday evening, uh, 490 homicides have been reported for the year, but the department's statistics don't include killings on an area expressway, police-involved shooting, self-defense killing, or death investigation. Last year, which became Chicago's bloodiest in a decade, the city recorded 500th in late August. So, wow. You waited two more weeks to kill 500 people. Good job, Chicago. At the start of the month, the police touted a 47% drop in homicides from August 2016 to 2017, and then it all went to shit. Within this article, two pregnant women shot in Chicago in less than 36 hours. Yeah. The fatality uh, most recent was a Chicago lawn neighborhood, approximately 8.20 p.m., 6,000 block of South Richmond. Three people were shot, and one, a 42-year-old woman, was killed when she sustained a gunshot wound to the head. 37-year-old man was shot in the chest, was taken to Stronger Hospital in serious condition. Third victim sustained a grazed wound to the nose, refused medical treatment. The two pregnant women were shot in 36 hours. The first fatality of the weekend occurred on Friday night at approximately 8.35, when four people, including a pregnant woman, were shot and killed while sitting in a car. South Fairfield. Avenue. What the fuck, Chuck? Remember, Democrat owned, Democrat ran, Barack Hussein Obama has a home there. If a Republican had a hundred murders in a year, you'd hear it every day and twice on Sunday. On MSDNC. To another music break and news. Social media nuggets. Come all. (laughs) 
welcome. But beware all those that enter here.
is to stay alive. Stop. Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. game on campus these days and they call it pc pc politically correct and it's not just politics it's everything it's what you eat it's what you wear and it's what you say if you don't watch yourself you can get in a buttload of trouble for instance we have right see these girls yeah no you don't those are women you call them girls and they'll pop your figs save the whales gays in the military now No military corner today. We're just going to go straight into our crazy. And for those who listened to the last podcast, I apologize for the editing error of my new manipulation of the news and social media nuggets with some PCU sound bites. Somehow I edited it wrong where everything was loud and I'm yelling, but you can't hear me over the shed. So I fixed it now. So it's an interlude into the rest of it and to our usual clown music. And here's some clowns. Student editorial blast obsession with memorializing 9-11. The editorial board of the student newspaper at Pennsylvania State University, Barron, wants America to end its obsession with 9-11, asking in exasperation, will we never forget? Arguing that there are plenty of other things in other countries that were a result of terrorist attack. The editorial declares that the thing that caused 9-11 is not a specific thing that can be beat. Yeah. The Baron Beacon published an editorial on September 12th claiming that the general consensus in the Beacon newsroom is that the U.S. needs to remember September 11th that our society obsession of the day needs to fade. Observing that the majority of us have little to no memory of that day, but have grown up with the consequences in the form of increased airport security, the Patriot Act, hatred towards people that look anything remotely like the terrorists. The editors go on to point out that there are plenty of other things in other countries that are worse. It's a real, real thing. And uh, I say to all of you, go fuck yourself. No, we should never forget that day. Just like we should never forget Pearl Harbor. It's people like you that want to forget it is why we end up with wars. And long wars. 
because you still don't think it's a roar. I mean, if Antifa's fake, as Whoopi says, and as we listen to the Antifa people who think that the terrorists and ISIS is just made up bullshit, no wonder we're in the shithound. This one I love. New Ferguson play shreds fake news. Media outlets cooked up the term fake news in part to discredit Trump. Conservative quickly hijacked the phrase to illustrate the liberal bias infecting today's headlines. Filmmaker Flem, I guess his name's not Flem, but Thelem McKeeler says the worst instance of fake news in recent memory has nothing to do with Trump. The way the media reported on Ferguson is the most extreme example of fake news in recent years, says McClear, referring to the coverage of a 2014 shooting death of a black man, Michael Brown, by a white police officer. The provocateur behind Frack Nation side stories featuring so-called eyewitnesses supporting the narrative that Brown had hands up when he was shot. That testimony often defies the laws of physics, he says. Only reporters did attempt to corroborate them. It's a simple piece of journalism. Go to the apartment and look out the window, he says. Reporters didn't do basic journalism. They were more concerned with the fake news narrative. Not McClear. That's why he mounted a stage production two years ago inspired by the shooting as Ferguson's stage reading used transcripts of the grand jury testimony tied to the case, which exonerated Officer Darren Wilson for its source material. No creative license, no dramatic interpretation or fictional characters. Just the facts in a sharp contrast to some mainstream media. And he's taking this shit, was crowdfunded, taking it to New York. And I think that is just awesome. Awesome! And long overdue. Because my friends, that is still the most insane thing I've ever watched. That that went on for so long and news crews, CNN, had their hands up, don't shoot bullshit. Man. Sorry, had to get something to drink. Unbelievable that he's actually going to be able to take it to New York, who totally believed that crap. They think it's all true. It's all true. Alt-left insanity. Have you hugged your white privilege today? This is a composite by MRC. No. Normal people might find some of this offensive. We hope, dear Lord, please. Let's play the word association game. I'll say a word and you respond. Me, white. You, black. Older folks like myself who have seen a Chevy Chase Richard Pryor version of this on TV. Liberals shouting far away. Privilege! Yes, how many times? How times change. No longer do we accept the antonym response. That makes too much sense. Now liberals demand that the word white be associated with privilege. In the liberal world, which is located just slightly left of the twilight zone, everyone with white must have privilege. A quick Google search delivers almost laughable results. There's ESPN President Loudmouth Jamil Hill bashing President Donald Trump on Twitter as white supremacist who is largely surrounded, blah, blah, blah. That means there's something wrong with you. The height of white privilege is being able to ignore his white supremacy. Da, 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 da. Trump doesn't have white privilege, he has green privilege, as do thousands of athletes and entertainers who wield more celebrity and cash than most of us garner in a lifetime. This is all part of a multimedia push by the left to divide us, so naturally there's a movie, Suburbicon, George Clooney's Suburbicon is an indictment of white privilege wrapped in a Cone's crime comedy, explains The Verge. Actual quote, one, Superbicon is most literally about how the fabled 50s heyday of white America, the same one certain political campaigns thought would help make America great again, is an abject lie, a veneer that hid depravity, cruelty, and corruption. 
I bet you aren't sold on how blatant it will be yet. You will be. Actual quote two. Suburbicon is a proud all-white community, and when a black family moves into the neighborhood, the residents take immediate action. And the twisted minds of racist, sexist, violent Hollywood white people are in the new go-to villain villains. There's a generic suburban white villains. There's a redneck white villains, and dress them up, and you have a twofer white Nazi villains. Notice how rare it is that people of color or members of the LGBT cosine of four community are bad guys. Hollywood is programming you just like they did with Will and Grace. In just a week's time, there's actress Reese Witherspoon getting woke about the topic of privilege. Mother Magazine on how to teach her kids about it. I began to understand that as a white person, I can be complicit in upholding systems of oppression, she said. Even a South Park computer game making use of white privilege for gameplay. Grow up poor, grow up uneducated, none of it matters. Wherever your life experience, the alt-left invalidates it with two words, white privilege. That means you aren't allowed to challenge it, to debate or even discuss it. If you so much as bring up the topic, you get labeled. That leaves us with two choices, play their game or not. I refuse. Hollywood is the most racist, sexist industry in America. I refuse to allow them to get away with claiming they are better than us. Which takes us to the rest of the week. How dare you watch football? This article bashes African-American men who watch football. Yes, I'm really serious. Here's the Roots headline. If you're a black man watching football this Sunday, you are 25 things I already know about you. If you are an African-American male who watch football, and I know several here what the left thinks of all of you. All actual quotes. Some of your closest friends are white. You eat mad about mounts of mayonnaise. The point is handily humorous. See Undercover Brother. You drink with your pinky out. You believe that slaves who left the plantation were uncouth. The list goes on to 25. That's just four of the worst. Imagine a conservative website owned by a top donor to Trump running garbage like this. But being that I am a man of the people who believes we all must know everything the left does. Here's a 25 things in total because I, I I think we need to know all of this. This is really important stuff. If I can get my web browser to work again. Because it hasn't worked. One, you have an open crystal bottle of 2001 on your dresser. You fished it out of a cup club trash can. You spray cologne in the air and then walk through the cl- cologne cloud. You've dry snitched on your brothers or sister for having company in the house when mama was at home. Um, what the fuck happened? The webpage jumped. No, oh, what the hell happened? Hold on. Let me do it again. Sorry. Something happened with the webpage because it's like a really long webpage. Um, some of your close friends are white. You would have gotten on the bus during the bus boycott because your job's far and you didn't see how not riding a bus would stop anything since we really shouldn't be boycotting the advertisers on the bus. You eat bad amounts of mayonnaise. You pee sitting and wipe back to front. You own at least one pair of pants and don't reach your ankles. You drink with your pinky out. You lie about your job status and claim that your mother's Nissan Sentra is really your work car. You have been dancing black guy at all white events and have shown group of white people how to cha-cha slide. You still play music really loud in your car and have rims to, on your shit and you, you're well in your 40s. You wear driving gloves. 
You have five profiles on Match.com to coincide with your five personalities. You believe that slaves left the plantation were uncouth? You believe this webpage, the root sucks. Jesus, it keeps doing its thing. Uh, you truly believe that Colin Kaepernick just cut his hair and focused on football while you playing the NFL. You think that all the unarmed black men, women, and children had just followed officers' directions, they'd still be alive. You made this argument in front of mixed company. You find your mother-in-law... You find your mother's love of collars to be embarrassing. You watch bad amounts of porn and have one of the world's strongest handshakes. You own a pair of underarm sneakers. You wear weightlifting gloves even when you aren't lifting weights. You read Jason Whitlock. You love overweight white women and use the term pog. Yeah, that, that's... And, and the beginning is if you're self-respecting black man, you don't give a shit because you're protesting this season for the way the league has treated Colin Kaepernick, whose silent stance against the killing of unarmed black men and women and children has led to being whiteballed by the NFL. That's that's the article. The Root is one of the most racist fucking websites I've ever seen. I don't know how they get along uh, get away with it because you couldn't do it the other way. Let's move it on. Let's remake the language in our own image. Thanks. Thank the establishment for this little bit of alt-left thought. What happened if you're gender queer, but your native language is gendered? I'm not even reading that. Dare you, don't you dare eat that. Whatever it is. One of the things about supporting personal responsibility, you're okay with people eating things they like. You don't try to mandate what they have to work out or raise the cost of certain foods because they appear unhealthy today, though another study will change that tomorrow. But the left loves to tell us how to live. Here's alt left lefty alternate telling us what foods and drinks to stop having. It's headline, 11 worthless foods to cut from your diet. And if that wasn't enough, it includes the subhead, many popular foods cause distress to your body. Yeah, the list includes Arizona iced tea, soda, and flavored water. So if you're thirsty, there's always milk or beer or water, unflavored, of course. They'll be covered in a future story. The article quotes one expert who whines, plus soda doesn't nourish you. It doesn't give your body anything at all. I'm shocked, shocked, I tell you, that soda, which we drink for pure enjoyment, doesn't include anything worthwhile. Then there's cheese, sweet cereal. This goes so far as to include some types of yogurt, Greek types, and granola bars. No pizza, no fried chicken, no soda, no nothing. What is wrong with people? Oh, I know. It's the colleges. UNC masculinity contributes to perpetration of violence. Yeah. University of North Carolina Chapel Hill is hosting a discussion group to help men shift the culture of masculinity towards more nonviolent norms. Vassar College, meanwhile, is hosting a dinner program to liberate men from toxic masculinity through monthly discussions. God damn, these people are jackasses. But this is even worse. Feds pay $8 million to promote diversity in STEM. We covered it once before, but now they're putting money where their mouth is. The National Science Foundation recently issued 27 new grants totaling more than $8 million to people that aren't even qualified to teach this shit just because they want more diverse people teaching in STEM and going in STEM fields. You watch. Before it's all said and done, there will literally be... 
people that are getting free scholarships for shit that people have to be qualified for just so we have the right amount of people and their grades will reflect that well they're 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 not smart enough but because we like their color or gender or sexual orientation they're passing harvard this one was awesome admits mistake rescinds chelsea manning fellowship this is from the 15th um Two days after announcing that Chelsea Manning would serve as a visiting fellow at the Kennedy School Institute of Politics, Harvard University issued a statement rescinding the invitation. Former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, has resigned his own fellowship in protest of Manning's invitation, and CIA director Michael Pompeo withdrew from a speaking engagement at the school. Chelsea Manning tweeted, honored to be the first in disinvited trans woman visiting Harvard fellow they chill marginalized voices under the CIA pressure hashtag we got this yeah so they rescinded the shit uh, let's get to what they say Manning of Fort I don't give a fuck da, 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 da. <clears throat> for president Harvard action implicitly tell its students that you could you too can be a fellow at Harvard and a felon was what they said Harvard's September 13 announcement, its first transgender fellow and described Manning as a network security expert and advocate for queer and transgender rights. The biography also implied that Manning acted as a whistleblower. In a September 14th letter to Dean of Kennedy School, Douglas Elmendorf, former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, announced that he was resigning from his fellowship at Belfer Center, another Kennedy School project. I cannot be part of an organization, the Kennedy School, that honors a convicted felon and leaker of classified information, he wrote, reiterating Manning had put American lives at risk and received bipartisan condemnation. Morell also mentioned that while he fully supports Manning's rights, he believes a fellow could encourage others to leak information. Um, his initial tweet, this chick dude, was good when Morello said fuck it. CIA Director Pompeo quickly followed withdrawing from a speaking engagement. Miss Manning, he said Miss Manning, go fuck yourself, Pompeo, betrayed her country and stands against everything the brave men and women I serve alongside stand for, he wrote. Pompeo made it clear that his decision had nothing to do with Miss Manning's identity as a trans person because you got to do the liberal litmus test or you're going to get fucking bashed for it. And everything to do with his identity as a traitor. He lamented that Harvard's action implicitly tells students that you too could be a fellow at Harvard and a felon and slammed the university for giving Manning treasonous action its stamp of approval. On the morning of 17th, uh, September 15th, Elmendorf issued a statement on behalf of the Kennedy School canceling Manning's fellowship, saying the school invites people with a wide range of views to speak and answers questions, including controversial individuals. He specified the school in invited Manning because it looks for those who have significantly influenced events in the world, even if they do not share our values. Elmendorf maintained the title Visiting Fellow is merely a designation for visiting speakers and that Harvard did not intend to honor Manning in any way or to endorse any other words or deeds as we do not honor or endorse any fellow. However, I know that I think that des designating Chelsea Manning as a visiting fellow was a mistake. I still think that having her speak in the forum and talk with students is consistent with our longstanding approach. After realizing that many people view a visiting fellow title as a honorific, Elmendorf announced that we are withdrawing the invitation to her to serve as a visiting fellow, but maintaining the invitation for her to speak 
a day at the Kennedy School. Elmendorf apologized to Manning, responded with a tweet, no more secrecy, surveillance, torture, murder, and genocide. Abolish the CIA. That's how I responded. He responded. Yeah. Which I think is a victory for normalcy. You don't get a pass on being a traitor because you turn your fucking dick into a JJ. It shouldn't matter. But in the liberal verse, which is a universe that's different than yours and I, somehow, yeah, you become a hero. Really? Really? Okay. University of Michigan pharmacist takes a stand against collusion. The University of Michigan School of Pharmacy recently draped a banner in one of its on-campus buildings saying it stands against collusion. The banner lists terms of oppression, but the dean of the school could not explain exactly why collusion was chosen for the non-exhaustive list. Stand against racism, sexism, bigotry, discrimination, white supremacy, something phobia, homophobia, it wasn't transphobia, it's stapophobia, I don't even know what the fuck that is, ableism, ageism, anti-Semitism, collusion, heterosexism, transphobia, misogyny, and sexism again. Because you can't have just sexism once, you got to have it like twice. You stand against it, you pharmacist. Berkeley professor cancel classes for mental safety. Yeah. We kind of covered it last time. But this is, uh, there's another one coming with Milo Yiannopoulos, Steve Bannon, and Ann Coulter. So they're canceling classes. I think every conservative thinker in the world is going to go to fucking Berkeley to fuck with them. UNC students threaten federal lawsuit over Confederate statue. Students at the University of North Carolina Chapel for violating the Civil Rights Act of 64 if it does not remove a Confederate statue. Okay. You know why we keep getting all this shit, though? Because there's a poll at Yale. 75% of Yale professors identify as liberal. A recent survey by the school newspaper found that 75% of Yale University faculty members identify as liberal or very liberal, dwarfing dwarfing, which is kind of like dwarfing, the 10% who lean conservative. That doesn't surprise me. Not at all. And I think it's probably off. The 15% who did independent are probably left-leaning independent. Stanford student brings about doxing conservative journalist, because remember, doxing's a big deal on the left. Uh, university student recently admitted to doxing journalist Ashley Ray Goldberg in 2014, bringing about the move on Twitter. As a result of the doxing, Goldberg and her parents were threatened with violence and rape. Yeah. The worst thing of all is that people started messaging my mother Goldberg toward campus reform, noting that hundreds of thousands of people actually praised the doxing. Telling you. That's why I go by an alias on here, folks probably lose my job if I even just for one second say Bradley Manning. California to provide $30 million to DACA students. California Governor Jerry Brown recently announced that he and the state legislative leaders have agreed to provide $30 million in funding for DACA students, including $10 million in financial aid. One state senator remarked in a press release that he and his colleagues will not let one man with xenophobic tendencies undercut years of progress. 
referring to Trump. The move comes after Trump announced plans to end the program in just days after the University of California System President Janet Napolitano sued his administration to reverse the decision. Once again, don't step foot into California. Crazy shit. The shocking moment, two couples start a huge brawl in a Walmart jewelry section while their children try and break them up. This is a good one. A brawl was captured on video of two couples fighting in New Jersey Walmart on Saturday while their young children looked on in horror and tried to stop the fight. The two sides appeared to be a woman and a man, both wearing black tops versus another couple in red and burnt yellow shirts. As they beat on each other, two little girls can be seen trying to stop the chaos and hit on one of the women to stop while crying. A woman in a pink jacket steps in the middle of the brawl and screams at the parents to think about the children helps end the mess of fight. It was captured in a minute, it's a minute long video. Two couples can be seen tussling near a jewelry counter. The two sides appear to be a woman and a man, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't say what they were fighting over. Wow. I played Halloween music to interlude to this because we're getting there. The Halloween season's upon us. This is fucking horrible. One dead, two winded, wounded in Jackson. Suspect wearing Jason Voorhees mask sought. Police say a man wearing a Jason Voorhees mask from Friday 13th responsible for the death of a Kendrick Hughes and the hospitalization of two others. On Rebelwood Drive, which leads to Pine Ridge Apartments where the shooting happened, cars were parked bumper to bumper. Drivers had gotten out to console each other to ask questions, and in some cases simply because they couldn't get back to their apartments. A whale cut the air, the kind that comes from learning that someone beloved is gone. It was one of many emotional moments in the crowd. One of the victims was in surgery, and his condition is unknown. This was in Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi. Cops, Louisiana couple recorded explicit acts of public library, Walmart, and Burger King. They made the rounds fucking and filming it and putting it up on Pornhub. The Jurgens, seen in above mugshots, were each charged with six counts of obscenity, news of which Rex shared on the couple's Pornhub page after the release on bail. To all my friends and followers, the wife and I just recently bailed out of jail for public videos we posted on Pornhub. Hopefully soon we'll get a post a new video soon, wrote Jernigan. He uses the handle SexyBeast82. His wife moniker is Layla Devine. The couple's page has 4,187 subscribers. And in videos have been viewed more than 1.7 million times. In a brief about notation on Pornhub, Jex Jernigan wrote, I've always loved to be nude and show off the body since I was a teenager. He added, hope everyone enjoys your videos. The more attention we receive, the more we'll post. For research, I went and looked up their page. Neither one of them are worth looking at. So for the female audience out there, don't waste your time. Yeah. I, 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 the internet's a horrible place. Just horrible. And so is South Africa. Cannibal killer shot by police of refusing to stop eating woman's beheaded body. Yeah. That happened. I know it's happening in America too somewhere. We just don't know about it yet, but what the fuck, man? Game of Thrones is a show, folks. It's not real. You don't need to be one of those fucking wildings to start eating people. This one should have probably been thought out, and it really wasn't. Chinese sex doll rental service suspended amid controversy. I'm not reading. I'm just going to sit there. Rental. 
renting a sex doll. I don't think they should be reused. But maybe that's just me. Now to a serious article. This was uh, actually from November 16th, 2016. I just came across it, and it's a Jonah Goldberg article. And I really liked it. Uh, Simple title. No liberals. Not everything is racist. The Electoral College is an instrument of white supremacy and sexism, exclaimed Slate Magazine. CNN, math is racist. How data is driving inequality. From the embassy affiliate in Oklahoma, to be white is to be racist. Norman student offended by teacher's lecture. Wow, things are bad here in America. Maybe I should move to Canada. Uh Uh-oh, from Heat Street. Canoes reek of genocide, theft, and white privilege, says Canadian professor. Good Lord. Is there no place safe from white supremacy? Let me check the Huffington Post. North Korea proves your white male privilege is not universal. In other words, going by the headlines, you think everything is about race. Or as the Harvard Crimson put it, everything is about race. You might call it a cheap technique. Headlines are supposed to be provocative, particularly in the age of clickbaiting that passes for much of what we call journalism. Let us look to the academy where cool reasons rule. Hey, stop laughing. I haven't even gotten to the punchline yet. Over at the Journal of Applied Philosophy, sorry about that, we're told that condemning racism is, wait for it, racist. The moralization of racism that often permeates, permeates philosophical scholarship reproduces colorblind logics, which provide individualistic explanations for structural problems, thereby sustaining white dominance, writes Marzia Malazzo in an article titled On White Ignorance, White Shame, and Other Pitfalls in Critical Philosophy of Race. What Malazzo calls colorblind logics holds everyone to equal standards of fact and reason. This wacky notion is the wellspring from which we got the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, the rules of law, doctrines of universal human rights, abolishment of slavery, the emancipation of women, the civil rights movement, the concept of free speech and unprecedented material prosperity. Reason is a tool that brings us conscious, appeals to our conscience, and keeps us from returning to the jungle. It all reminds me of the great scene from Monty Python's Life of Brian, where a revolutionary asks, what has the Roman Empire ever done for us? A comrade lists a bunch of things, and the the man replies, all right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, the freshwater system, and public health, what has the Romans ever done for us? Activists today are clear-cutting vast swaths of civil society to make room for reason-free zones where feelings outrank facts. They call them safe spaces. And if they had their druthers, the entirety of the continent, if not the globe, would be one giant beanbag chair strewn realm of hugging and unapologetic whining. Seemingly every day there's another story of a college campus saving into the notion are caving into the notion that free speech and unhappy facts are racist. The election of Donald Trump, a man I could not have been more critical of, has turned the safe spaces into kinds of internal refugee camps where the weeping delicate flowers can wilt in terror. I did not like how Trump talked about issues of race. 
Some of his most ardent supporters of views on race I find abhorrent, but they can st- constitute a tiny minority of his coalition. Just consider that if you subtracted from Trump's column all of the voters who had all also previously voted for Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton surely would have won. If you think everything you don't like is racist, then of course the election of a president you don't like has to be racist. Here's some free advice for all the liberals insisting that Trump was elected by racist. The more you say that, the more you help Trump. I can understand why this is confusing. There's a certain breed of guilty white liberal who actually enjoys being called racist, confessing its racial sins, and denouncing less advanced white people. The hot new term for this is virtue signaling, a way of communicating how enlightened you are. For there are a lot more white people out there who aren't racist and therefore don't like being called racist or being berated about how their country is racist. They also sense that everything is about race crowd is using race as a cudgel to silence critics and have their way. That sort of thing begs for a backlash. You can call it racist if you want. Some people do with everything else, but it won't play well outside your safe spaces. Hard to believe that was written December, January, 11 months ago. But it still rings true today. Everything's still racist. Every Trump supporter is a homophobe, a transform, a xenophobe, a sexist, a racist, an ableist, an ageist, an istist. Our media is still playing it. The NFL's racist because they won't let a fucking second string quarterback play anymore. It's kind of silly. And as I've said a million times on the show, if everything's racist, what is racist? It's getting to the point that it's hard to figure out what racist is anymore. When an actress can walk the red carpet and say, I'm rooting for only black people, and that's okay. When you have to give awards to black people, or else face their rage. That's probably racist. There were a whole bunch of people of other colors that were competing, but they couldn't get the award because if you don't give it to them, they throw a fit. And when we curb into every little group because what they feel like and what their feelings are, there's an ist in there somewhere. So I think I'll close on that for the show. It's a pretty good closing If you ask me, each and every podcast, I bring you more and more crazy from the religion and cult that is progressivism with no end in sight. By the time we close this year out and I do the end of year show, All I'm going to do is play a baby crying because that's what this entire year has been. One long, wailing, newborn baby crying just to be crying. And it's sad. Don't have a funny, lighter fare, but I want to close on a very interesting one. I am a Game of Thrones person, as I talk about on the show all the time. And somehow, some way, I got this in a feed the other day. I was searching for something for the show. 
But I have been searching a lot of the conspiracy theories about season seven of Game of Thrones. And there was a simply titled YouTube video. If Jamie Lannister was a United States soldier. There's a crowd advancing six, seven blocks from the crash. Shigar and Gordon again request permission to secure until convoy arrives. Over. This is Garrison. I want to make sure that y'all understand what you're asking for, so say it out loud and clear. We're asking to go in and set up a perimeter until ground support arrives. And you realize that I cannot tell you when that might be. It could take quite a while. Roger that. And you still want to go in there? Yes, sir. Yes, he played Gordon in Black Hawk Down with the sudden southern drawl, and I never caught that because it's such a brief scene. And for those, uh, Shugart and Gordon were the Congressional Medal of Honor winners. They were SF, and they went down there to secure the site. Of course, were killed by the mob and forever uh, rest- ever honored by being the actual mount site and the major infantry training center of Fort Polk, Louisiana. Shugart and Gordon is one of the hardest objectives you'll ever take down, and most units don't even make it halfway through before getting their ass handed to them. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool um, that he played that role. I had another soundbite. was going to play it. I'm not going to because it's pretty brief but to the point. And our last podcast... We talked about the racist piece of shit who did a music video that basically showed a white little boy getting hung while a black little boy watched it. And at a concert this week, he got knocked the fuck down. He looked like a rag doll. And it was hard on the video to check, but I believe the assailant was white. I, I couldn't really tell. Um, because the moment he knocked this rapper down, he was surrounded by about 10 African Americans beating the living fuck out of him. Um, couldn't find any other story. It was a TMZ article really quick and it, you know, never blew up as I thought it would. Um, I, I was expecting to see it on MSNBC about some white supremacists beat up a rapper for just rapping, but that story never broke, but, um, I'm going to stay on it until next time. So for the next podcast, I'll try to find something out about that. I'm going to go into Amazon ratings of Hillary's book, most definitely, and the sales of her book. I'll give it a little more time, and uh, we'll review that in our next podcast, which will probably be next week. i got a pretty busy week this week because of uh, work schedule and slave labor camp, which comes up this weekend in preparation of Jen in Colorado coming out to the ponderosa uh and that podcast of that week which will be around the 5th of uh, 5th 6th or 7th of october i will wave off a podcast uh at the end of that week so we can do the podcast with big sis which will be a lot of fun um as of right now we're going to cover women's perspective of abortion what she thinks of the south and the people thereof and a flashback to our childhood um, favorite memories of growing up in Oregon, uh, which I think would be a really fun 
podcast to do. Specifically since she is the one who bought this great recording equipment. So it would be nice to hear her voice coming through it. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share this with family and friends. Send comments by emailing foppodcast at gmail.com. Foppodcast at gmail.com. You can get this show on SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Remember to check out the Flyover Politic webpage at foppodcast.com, foppodcast.com. It's a theme. To see links to feeds for the show, links to our Facebook page, and to email us, there you'll also see a link to every episode on the episode release page and my blog on the blog page. Once again, next podcast will be Monday, 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 and that is the 25th of September to give me some room to get my life in order, and we'll cover what we talked about a few seconds ago and all a bunch of other crazy shit going on. I hope you guys have a rest of a good, let me try to say that in English, have a good rest of the week and a fantastic weekend. Make sure you disconnect from all devices and your computer, and give those people you love in your life your undivided attention. And as always, thanks for listening, my friends, and take care.